All right. Um, last Lord's Day, I put the, the next section of the outline up. The last Lord's Day, we went through the first third of um, from the book of Jude, the judgment of the intruders, which covers all five verses 5 through 16. We covered verses 5 to 10. Today, we're going to pick up at 11 and cover all the way to the end. We're going to start with the woe oracle that Jude gives. But for anyone who wasn't here, and even for those who were here, like me, I always need reminders and remembrance. I want to do a real, real brief review. Back in, in verses 5 uh, to 7, we looked at the rebellion of the desert generation of Israel and the multiple and, and various acts referenced here to the unbelief that led to their death. Not just their, their death, but Jude says their destruction in the desert. And next, the angels who abandoned their abode and came to earth as men and having relations with, with women who are now being kept in bondage of darkness, waiting for the final judgment from the Lord. And then finally, Sodom and Gomorrah, that according to the Lord had reached their limit in sexual perversion, indulging in gross immoralities, and also in the neglect of the poor. And without any repentance, they met their first death in fire and brimstone from the Lord of heaven. And Jude arranged, arranged these examples for us in a crescendo of judgment. And then in verses 8 to 10, we looked into the details, specifically the three sins of the intruders, these, these adversaries that have crept into the church. And specifically, the three sins of these intruders committed that warranted their judgment in and through their dreaming, their so-called spiritual visions, how they justified their defilement in the flesh, their, their licentious living and sexual immorality, rejecting the authority of Christ over their lives and even slandering demonic forces that they did not even understand. So in case you didn't read ahead in Jude this week, we're going to see that he's not yet finished with these intruders of the churches. And I hope you can sense, I, I, it really hit this week, um, just how concerned Jude is for these beloved saints, like a shepherd, like a pastor caring for his flock, and the great harm, the potential harm to the spiritual life and the walk of these readers. It, it's so very great to Jude, and he's going even further in his, in his polemic against these certain men in the next three verses. And this, the severity in Jude's writing is not some mild dispute or, or a disagreement between a few people. But his whole focus is on the false teaching and the corrupted lifestyle and how it goes against everything scriptural, against the gospel, against the authority of the Father, Son, and Spirit, and even the angelic realm. And he's bringing to light the evil within these men by revealing the unbelief in their hearts because of their actions. It's not only a warning to these beloved saints about associating with these certain men and confirming their prescriptive judgment, but also as an appeal for them to contend for the faith. So let's, let's pick up our reading. If you open your Bibles to the book of Jude, um, last one right before Revelation, we're going to read verses 11 to 16. Jude 11. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the air of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts. 
when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these men that Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers finding fault following after their own lusts. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. On the, on the surface, initial reading, it, it might appear that Jude's just simply providing another triad of the, these types or triplets of examples in how these false teachers compare to Old Testament examples. But it's more than just a variation on the previous illustrations. Jude does compare the teachers to these three groups of sinners we found in verses 5 to 17, but now he's comparing them to three notorious individual sinners. And we need to look closer at this because Jude's purpose is, is, ver- is more precise. In verses 5 to 10, he identified the false teachers as the evil sinners they are and the due judgment awaiting them. But in 11 to 13, he's now portraying these, these men more distinctly as false teachers, as those who lead other people in sin or into sin. Grasping this, this section is going to give much greater unity because this section of the letter clearly reveals Jude's opponents as the false teachers they are. They weren't just members or maybe I should say associates of the church they were in who were guilty of immoral lifestyles. They were men that we could identify, as one pastor said, as spiritual terrorists. They not only taught a false gospel, taught antinomianism based on the authority of their spiritual visions they had, but they had no regard to the effect on the believer when they led them into sin and saw them being destroyed. <coughs> this is the same thing we saw in the church of Pergamum in Re- Revelation chapter 2. And it will be the subjects and the victims of these teachers that we're going to look at next week, Lord willing, in the last 17 to 25. But anyway, Jude begins this section with a powerful, one of the powerful woes, the woe oracle, woe to them. This is a serious announcement of pain and distress to a people, or actually even about a people who were to receive as a result of their sin, God's righteous judgment upon them. It's a common, it is common in prophetic oracles, and especially in, in Isaiah and Jeremiah, where it's used to express the very sad situation of those coming under divine judgment. It's also prominent in the teachings of Christ, especially in Matthew 23, where we see Christ exposing the Phariseeism, and he gives the eight woes directly to the scribes and Pharisees. But do you notice something different here with Jude's woe versus the other ones in Scripture? And what's, what's different is that Jude is addressing the church rather than the false teachers themselves. He's telling the church, look at the woe that's going to be placed upon them. And he's using the the same type of prophetic form, and and he is himself speaking prophetically 
to the church about these false teachers. And the verbs he uses are in an aorist tense for these three examples he gives, which would denote a past time event or a past time context. But here, there's more of a timeless action with it, which means that each example is a function of a type. And with the last of these referring to Korah, giving it the certainty of their future destruction. So Jude's first charge in using this woe oracle is that these false teachers have taken the way of Cain. What do you think it means by taking the way of Cain? What's he referring to here? That's part of it, yep. What else? Do you think he's talking about his murder? His murderous ways? Well, it's... The, the expression here is, is taken the way of, but it's, it's better understood in a, a literal way as walking in the way of. Not, not meaning a literal walking as if in the same footsteps, but rather to follow the same moral example as someone else. And these teachers are following in the same example of Cain. It's not so much as an example of murdering one another, but Cain's murder here is seen as a metaphor. It's an example of of one having a deep-seated hatred or for his brother or sister. Those murderous thoughts and intentions of the heart are understood. Fundamentally, Cain chose wickedness over good and, and indifference over obedience. And he's cast as the archetypal, archetypal sinner and, and an instructor of others in sin. But Cain was the prototype apostate, if you will. And Josephus even wrote about him in, in the apocryphal writings that portrays Cain as one guilty of greed, violence, lust, and even the great corrupter of mankind. But when we account, consider the account of Cain more closely in Genesis 4, we can see by his indifference toward God, even his commands and his authority, and even after a direct admonishment by God about for him to master his own sin, he carried out the selfishness and envy and greed in his heart and killed his brother Abel. But carrying this to the present, Jude's precisely identifying the motives and intents of the hearts of these false teachers in the same way as they walk in the way of Cain. Their motive is to lead others into indifference toward God and his commands, how to live for themselves and what the results they could care less about, even the ultimate destruction. And Jude continues the theme of greed in this verse with this next example in, in, of Balaam. And this is the first word that comes to mind when you typically ask somebody, what do they know about Balaam? It's along the same lines as Kadab said, it's greed. You can read about him in Numbers 22 to 24, but the reason we think of greed is because of Balak. He was the king of Moab at the time, and he tries to hire Balaam to curse Israel and halt the threat of the, the Israelites evading, invading his own land. Balaam eventually refuses Balak's request, but falters in his loyalty to the Lord. And this justifies the later view of him as the man who led Israel into sin for monetary gain. But how does this apply to Jude's false teachers in Jude's time? And it appears, it looks as though if Jude is drawing a parallel between Balaam and the false teachers in the way that Balaam poured himself out or rushed headlong into the greedy intentions for the sake of money and personal gain. 
And in spite of its disobedience toward God, these false teachers are also teaching only as a means of making money, kind of to fuel their lifestyle, to pay for the way they want to live. A couple of the commentators considered these guys itinerant, wandering prophets, as I mentioned in the first lesson. And there's a lot of intertestamental writings about these teachers who would go around teaching people whatever they would pay for, for them to teach. They'd want to have their ears tickled, in other words. Sounds very familiar today, doesn't it? So the final example here, well, stop. Is there any questions so far? We're, we're going to get to Enoch here in a minute. <laughs> I didn't forget your question last week. So, Okay, the final example here in Jude's triad goes back to Korah and his rebellion in the Old Testament. And this, again, is, is Jude bringing a crescendo in judgment. If you remember in, in number 16, Korah, along with Dathan and Abiram and On, rose up with 250 leaders of the congregation against Moses and, and Aaron. And these men assembled together and said to Moses, here in number 16, You have gone far enough, for all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is in their midst. So why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? When Moses heard this, he fell on his face. And Jude's reference here to Korah is making two points. One is that Korah disputed the authority of Moses. And Jude uses a Greek word, and they are antologia, rather than stasis, emphasizing, meaning that Korah's sin was verbally challenging both the authority and status of Moses and Aaron in the eyes of the people. This is what Jude brings forward to these, te these false teachers as their opposition to the gospel by the saints in the church as well as their leaders. Now the second point is that Korah was destroyed. And let's look at this in number 16, if you want to turn there, the start in verse 28, number 16, 28. Verse 28, Moses said, By this you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these deeds, for this is not my doing. If these men die the death of all men, or if they suffer the fate of all men, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord brings about an entirely new thing, and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that is theirs, and they descend alive into Sheol, then you will understand that these men have spurned the Lord. As he finished speaking all these words, the ground that was under them split open, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up, and their households, and all the men who belonged to Korah with their possessions. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive to Sheol, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. All Israel who were around them fled at their outcry, for they said, The earth may swallow us up. Fire also came forth from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering the incense. Wow. Jude prophetically applies this to these false teachers, again, by asserting that they too have perished. Maybe not in the exact same way as Korah, but their doom is surely sealed. 
And in these three examples, we see that Cain was exiled, Balaam died in the context of a battle, and Korah's fate was public and sudden and horrible. These three charges by Jude clearly characterize these false teachers by comparing them to the notorious sinners in the Old Testament. These are vivid examples of human who sad, humans who sadly, in one way or another, apostatize from the truth of God. Now in verse 12, Jude is continuing the application of this woe oracle to the false teachers with the use of these, these men. These men are now in the midst of your community and your church and your fellowship who, may, who make bold promises to benefit their, this community. But in all reality, they have nothing of any lasting spiritual, soulish, eternal value to offer. 1 Corinthians 11 and, and the writings of the early church describe for us the church body gatherings, how they would gather together for a meal, much like we're doing today having a potluck dinner, then after the meal they would recognize or, or have the, the ordinance of the Lord's surface, service, Lord's table, breaking bread and sharing a cup of wine. And this was done, obviously, as a reenactment of the last meal with Christ and his disciples, but also the Lord's table in the remembrance of his death. And these meal gatherings were called love meals, in this case love feasts, but the love feasts that these readers share in are being polluted and blemished, which is a better reading than, than hidden reefs. Although with both the meanings there, these false teachers are polluting the purity of the church, especially in light of the Lord's table, but also as a warning for the believers not to draw close to them. And these false teachers did not see any issue with including and involving themselves in this meal. And the danger here, besides a, a possible inf inference to gluttony, is that these meals were also times of prophecy and teaching for the body. This meant that the false teachers had an opportunity to kind of slip in their teaching and pollute more of the doctrines and, and even perverting the thinking of the saints, calling into questioning their own piety, their obedience, and their lives. The rendering of being without fear or without qualm is referring to their fearless approach to the Lord's table, not even examining their own souls. They were so focused on themselves to the exclusion of their own sin and remembrance of Christ. It's a blatant disregard for the ordinance of God in Christ. So you could, you could paraphrase this last part in this way. They were fearlessly shepherding themselves with no regards to other souls. And it appears that Jude may have in mind here the image of shepherd, which is taken from Ezekiel 34, 2 and 3, excuse me, where it says, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, thus says the Lord God, Woe, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. These teachers are out for their own good and profit, much like Balaam, without a care for the flock. And in the interest of feeding themselves, they cast off all the fear of their consequences. And since we've been identifying these certain men as false teachers now in this section of application, we're starting to see more that their teaching promises a lot but delivers nothing. 
And Jude gives us very, four very vivid metaphors from the spheres of nature, from land, air, sea, and heaven. And in each of these, he paints a very distinct image for us of just how empty and deceptive the words and promises of these false teachers were. Much like Proverbs 25, 14, and I'll read this is from the Holman translation. The man who boasts about a gift that does not exist in the clouds, excuse me, right there. <laughs> the man who boasts about a gift that does not exist is like clouds and wind without rain. Now, it's amazing how well this aligns with Jude's first example from nature toward these false teachers. From Jude's perspective, there's a, a wind that blows these men along, but it's surely not the Holy Spirit, not like John's description in his third chapter. However, their words were just like clouds developing on the horizon with hopes of, of bringing nourishing rain. But once they're overhead, they're carried away, leaving the hearer both empty and hopeless. Their wind is their constant drive for selfish gain with nothing, no water in, to, in their midst. And I'm probably, I'm sure, probably many of you, like I have experienced this very thing in your past. You know, Peggy and I have gone through several charismatic churches remembering those messages that simply stirred the senses, built up a lot of dramatic expression of some supposedly great truths. But nothing came to it. None of it flowed from it. No gospel truth. In the same way, there are more deceptive promises of power and wealth that much like these clouds dried up and disappeared with no fulfillment. Jude then turns from looking at the familiar skies to a vivid example in the land and the agricultural world. And it's interesting, he specifically looks at the particular season when the bounty and, and the abundant blessings from creation are to be gathered, not late fall or, or early winter, but autumn when produce was ripe for the harvest, to be reaped with thanksgiving and, and for man's daily sustenance and enjoyment. However, we find the exact opposite in these false teachers. They're like sapless, lifeless, fruitless trees, not worthy of the ground they occupy. This resonates very much like Luke 13, 6, where the, these trees are bare when fruit is expected. But why does Jude say or use the term doubly dead or uprooted? Any comments, any ideas there? Jonathan? <laughs> I mean, Landon, sorry, we were talking about this last night. I, I don't think Jude's applying some botanical meaning here in the physical sense, but this term is being applied to the false teachers that maybe in one sense they've turned to their pre-conversion condition of spiritual death. But I think a better rendering of fruitless and rootless, but expressing here their total spiritual poverty, both now in the current deceptive state of life, but, but also ultimately in their second death that they'll face the final judgment. If you remember Christ's words in Matthew 15, 13, he says, every plant which my Father, Heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. In the third metaphor, Jude draws upon the image of the sea. Here he's referring to an image in Isaiah 57, 20. It says, but the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up refuse and mud. And here in Jude, these false teachers are just like that, the wicked, the foaming up 
casting up the mire and the mud, which is much like a, a vomiting forth of their shame, both in their words and their deeds, living only as, leaving only as their filth as a legacy. If you, like if you've ever been on a beach after a hurricane or a storm, there's nothing left but all the muck and the mire that's been blown up. Same way these men stir up a lot of sensational action, fruitless action, but all that's left is immorality, irreverence, lies, and shameful deeds. Final illustration comes from the realm of space, where Jude continues the, the image of restlessness. But he also includes two new concepts. Stars in the heavens are, are set in a, a course, or in some instances in an, in an orbit. They typically don't wander from here to there. And actually, in the New Testament times, the planets were considered unreliable for navigational purpose because of their rotation. They, they were moving. But Jude likens the false teachers to the wandering stars in a similar way to those in Isaiah 14, 12 to 15, where he talks about how a king who has abandoned the truth is much like a wandering or fallen star. And Revelation 9, 1 views fallen angels as fallen stars from heaven. While these false teachers were never kings or angels, the imagery here is that while these teachers had the commandments of the Lord, they've departed from them. And the second concept here with the, the heavens is a, a verbal connection to the era of Balaam and the use of wandering, or plané in the Greek. So similar to the wandering and falling stars, these false teachers appear across the sky of, of religiosity in some erratic flashing and in their rebellious brilliance, they suddenly disappear into the blackness of darkness, as Peter describes it. And this blackness of darkness is none other than the eternal fire reserved for them forever. Jude concludes this with the promise of God's judgment for those who will live in an evil, restless, wandering manner like these men. Now in verses 14 to 16, Jude begins his final application and he returns back to his original theme that he introduced in verse 4, where he cites an ancient writing popular at the time, although not one found in our canon of Scripture. Jude cites a prophecy from an apocryphal work called First Enoch. Now, this is a book of literature from the intertestamental period, and it's attributed to Enoch and his prophecies. Now, the way Jude quotes his writing has suggested to some that Jude believed First Enoch to be an inspired writing and book. This belief carried over to some of the early church fathers, who on one hand thought that First Enoch itself was inspired because Jude cited, cited it on his prophecies. But on the other hand, some in church history reasoned that First Enoch was not inspired, so Jude could not be in the canon since he quoted it. Still others even defended Jude's citation, saying that Jude had actually cited an oral tradition that had been passed down from the original Enoch, one from the seventh generation of, from Adam. And this tradition made it into a pseudepigraphical work. This isn't an easy issue. I mean, some of the commentaries I have on it are just the chapters they wrote about dissecting this and looking at all the historical writings. But here's some highlights that will help us understand it. Jude could not have been citing an oral tradition handed down from Enoch himself, 
since the book of First Enoch was in circulation in Jude's day and was widely known by the Jewish community, plus the date of its writing refutes this. And Jude certainly derived the citation from the apocryphal work of First Enoch, which is pseudepigraphical, not written by the actual Enoch. And Jude's use of this ex ex excerpt is simply referring to a familiar writing at the time which reiterated the prophecy of the Lord's triumphal return and judgment. So the subject of First Enoch's prophecy is the common Jewish theme of, of a lot of Jewish um, apocalyptic writers, that of God's judgment to the wicked. And the, the passage from First Enoch that Jude cites reads as follows. I'll read this to you. And behold, he cometh with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to destroy all the ungodly and to convict all flesh of all the works of their ungodliness which they have ungodly committed and of all the hard things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. And in, in this instance in verses 14 and 15, Jude uses the word kurios again for Lord and has the Lord Jesus Christ in mind here, coming at his parousia, accompanied with his myriads of angels. And in this context, it has the clear understanding of condemnation. Now we know from scripture that when Christ returns again, it will not be as a meek and mild lamb or a humble servant, but as a conquering king with his armies. And for the purpose of his, uh, purposes of his glory, He's going to bring an end to sin, death, and Satan, but also sinners, the ungodly, the vessels of sin. This is a very sobering reality, but for the believer, it's also one of great expectation, but also for reasons to share this precious gospel. And Jude says this great conviction of, of and judgment of these ungodly is not just against the false teachers, but it's intended for all the ungodly. And Jude stresses this point powerfully out in the severe and extensive ungodliness of their deeds and action. But he also points to the ungodliness of their speech. And that's what he carries further into verse 16 when he says, these are grumblers, finding fault, following after their own lusts. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. The grumbling and fault-finding of these false teachers was not just directed at any weaknesses detected in others, but was ultimately against God himself. They were just like Israel in the wilderness. Gangustes is what it says. They're murmuring against the living God and his holy law, never willing to submit to God's will. They continue to find fault to complain, to gripe, and resist, even attempting to find fault with the truth of Scripture, which exposes their selfish desires. And in this, they pursue their own pleasures and lusts, boasting of themselves and the comparison and demise of others, but again, ultimately, of themselves over God. The final declaration about these certain, flat, these certain men flattering people for the sake of gaining advantage is evident in their pursuit of pleasure and wealth, which you can see from verse 11. They spoke to certain people in such a soothing and deceptive way in order to gain reward as a means of fulfilling their own pleasures. 
And the Greek expression here is a marveling to the face, a showing of partiality, which is forbidden both in the Old Testament. We see that in James chapter 2. We do not know what they said, but very likely they taught what the hearers thought was pleasant and what they wanted to hear. They basically flatter people and do this to get money for selfish support. We see this today very clearly on the so-called Christian networks pleading for everyone's money. So, in conclusion of this section, Jude, I hope this discussion of First Enoch didn't create any more confusion for anybody. It's a whole study in itself. I, I have information if anybody would like to dig, dig into it further. But in closing, I want to hear what Jude is saying in these two verses, these two main points. The return of Christ Jesus in glory in our evangelism. We saw how Jude is referring to Jesus to Christ when referring to the Lord. We also know that as Jehovah came to redeem, redeem and constitute a people through the Exodus and Sinai, he also promised to come again to deliver and judge. It was Jesus who came to die on the cross, be buried, and was raised from the dead to redeem and constitute his people, of which we're celebrating today. But he is coming again to both redeem and make a final judgment. As I said, all true believers look forward to this great day of Christ's coming and, and his return with great curiosity, anticipation, and eagerness. Why? Because it's the blessed hope that comforts us in our weaknesses and our trials, our present afflictions of all types. And it encourages us in our hearts and souls to live and lead a holy life. But outwardly, it compels us to contend earnestly for the faith we've received once and for all. And asking ourselves in, in the reality of this, an examining question, and one that's been drilling into my heart this week studying this passage is, how should this truth lead us to regard the vast majority of people all around us? People who don't know Christ, maybe have never even heard of him or read the Bible. So one brother shared the video with me this week. That was very powerful. I'm so grateful to be joined to a body that, that not only understands this, but practices it, who live this at every opportunity. So in closing, I want to leave us with two verses from 1 Peter to, to be on our minds, our thoughts, our hearts, to edify us and, and stir us up by, by way of reminder. 1 Peter 1.13. Therefore, Prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Then chapter 3, verse 15. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is within you, yet with gentleness and reverence. <clears throat> 